Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue to move along? Matter of fact, we're going to finish that chapter tonight. A lot of verses, more than I usually do. But there's quite a bit of things that Paul wants us to know tonight. We've been talking about the grace of giving, and this is part three of that as we study through 2 Corinthians. That's why I love so let's let the scriptures bring it up. I've always been a little skeptical in my own life, not of somebody else, but in my own, of topical preaching because I tend to take a text here and a text there and push it. But I love to just teach the scriptures and let God bring it up when he wants to bring it up. And so tonight we're talking about giving. We're going to talk about tonight the soundness of grace giving. The soundness of grace giving. Now let me get you into this tonight. It's quite a powerful passage that we're going to be looking at. The Apostle Paul, and isn't it wonderful when you've been around a believer and hadn't been doing right, but all of a sudden you see him repent and you see a freshness come into his life. And that's what's happened with the church of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul has a, a brand new, renewed sense of confidence in them and in their walk with God. Now that they have repented and responded to that third letter, which must have been a tough letter that he sent to them. And Paul wants these Corinthian believers who've proven themselves by their repentance. Now, he wants to see them proven again in, their air, in the adder, matter of giving, spontaneous giving. He wants it to just flow out of their hearts. He, he, he wants them to have a witness to especially the other churches around. To encourage them, he cites the giving of the impoverished Macedonian believers. Now, this is just amazing how these people gave. He wanted to test the wealthy believers of Corinth as to the genuineness of their love. Look at verse 8 again as we review a bit to get into our text tonight. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command. And he did in 1 Corinthians, but now, see, they're changed. He says, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Now, let me walk you through that verse just real carefully. The word proving is the word dokimazo. It means to put something to the test. I, I want to put you to the test, but this kind of test is a test that would prove them to be genuine. There's another word for test that proves somebody to be unworthy. This word is always used to prove somebody to be what they say they are. Paul says, but proving through the earnestness of others. Now that phrase, earnestness of others, refers to the diligence of those impoverished Macedonian believers who just walk with God. Man, the testimony of their giving is incredible. And when they heard of the need over in Jerusalem, the poor saints over there, which lasted, by the way, for about a decade, 
they immediately responded to give to their need. But proving through the, the earnestness of others, these Macedonians, the sincerity of your love. The word sincerity there is a word that means legitimacy of something. He, he's saying, I, I want you to show by your giving the legitimacy of your love. I want you to be sincere in your walk with God. But proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. The word for love there is the word agape you know that there were four Greek words for love. One of them never used in Scripture. It's the only word we even talk about in the 21st century. It's the word eros. We get the word erotic from. It's a sensual love. It's never used in God's Word because it's on such a lesser degree of what He wants to talk about. And the word that's used here is agape. Love is the fruit. This kind of love is the fruit of God's Holy Spirit working in a believer's life when he's, when he's living yielded to Christ. And, and it means this love is the divine commitment to do what is beneficial to meet the needs of others regardless of what it costs me. Now, that's, that's something God produces within the life of a believer. Giving of our money to the needs of others always reflects the love of Christ manifested in us as believers. Now, you can look at the flip side of that. If you've got a person who calls himself a believer that doesn't give, it's very apparent that he doesn't love. Because you can't help but give when you love, you see. If he doesn't love, then it's apparent that he's not living under the lordship of Christ. He's not living yielded to Christ because there's no fruit. That fruit will be there if he, if he abides in the vine, if he's the branch that's willing to live abiding in the vine. A believer who doesn't uh, give will also show that evidently he knows nothing about the Christ life. He knows nothing about walking in the fullness of what God offers to him in Christ Jesus. And what he's done, and Paul gave us this warning in Ephesians 6, I mean, 2 Corinthians 6, 1. He says, he has received the grace of God in vain. Jesus is the grace of God. When we receive him, we, don't, we certainly don't want to start living in our own power. We want to live in his. And when we live in his, all of these things are just consequential to that life. In verses 8 through 12, the last time we were together, Paul shows us three beautiful principles of spontaneous giving, which is that grace work, which is God working in us. He understands the problem that the Corinthians have had. They, they tend to look at one gift as greater than the other. Same thing going on in the 21st century. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He said, you've missed it. Grace is equal, or giving rather, is equal to anything that grace offers. In other words, you, you, you can maybe have miracles and do miracles. and It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 13, and you can do all this other stuff, but if you do not have love, your noisy symbol, well, out of love comes the giving. And so it's got to be up there on the same level with everything else when God's working in a person's life. It's part of the grace package every, person believe, or every believer receives in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see to it that you abound in this gracious work also. Actually, literally, it's in this grace also. Now, Paul went on to illustrate that when a person is giving, he's in the flow. You ever heard of he, he, He's in the flow. He's in the current. God's Spirit doing something in his life. And when he does this, 
It's the example of God's love working in him and through him. It's, it is, it's not him, it's Christ in him. It's Christ's unselfish love being manifested in his life. It's this kind of love that is the backbone to all of giving. It's the root of it. If it's not there, the giving, then is, is there's, a, there's a motive that's not right in the giving. Verse 8 and 9, I'm not speaking this as a command, because remember, he wants to see it spontaneous, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, the Lord Jesus had an unselfish attitude towards you and I, sinners, and he was willing to empty himself of his divine glory. And he was willing to bow down and pay a debt he didn't owe for people like you and me that owed a debt we could not pay. And that same attitude is resident in his spirit that lives within us. You see, what he had and, and, and who he was did not stop him from doing what he came to do, from loving mankind who did not deserve anything that he did. When we live, when we give, uh, we are reflecting that very attitude, that, that unselfish attitude that he has towards others. But Paul also teaches us that giving is our effectual response to God's provision in our life. That's why he tells them, just give out of what you have. Be grateful for it and understand really who owns it. It says in verse 10 through 12, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also. So that there, just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. By your ability. And then he explains that. He says, for if the readiness is present, if you really were honest and real when you said you wanted to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has. Not according to what he doesn't have. You don't have, to, you don't have to be like the Macedonians who gave beyond their ability. He said, just start where you are. Be grateful for what you have and give out of what you have. And again, Paul doesn't command them because he wants to see this to be a spontaneous act of love working in their heart, exemplifying itself in the giving to the needs of others. So... He wants them to fulfill what they had expressed a desire to, go, to do over a year ago. That's interesting how many times we're, we're good starters and poor finishers. Well, today we will look into this marvelous subject, and we all want you to see the soundness of grace giving. Now, you say, well, Wayne, does grace giving hold up? In the midst of the 21st century with all of our academia and, and, the, and the suspicion and the doubt that is everywhere, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, this grace giving. Well, it ought to. It's very sound. And I want you to see three things he brings out tonight that is as solid as a rock, and it'll hold up even in the crazy century that we live in. And there are three things. First of all, you see the soundness in the fact, the provision in grace giving. You see it come out in the provision of grace giving. Now, this is a truth that you, I'm just praying that God will illuminate in your minds tonight. That's what has to happen. Preaching's one thing, and, but God has to take what is said in his word and illumine the mind with it. You've got to come to understand that great giving is the way to ensure our own needs will be met. Did you know that? It's a divine current that you get into. If you want to assure 
that your need, I didn't say your wants, I said your need, to know that your needs will be met, giving is God's way of making sure you can know that. Look at verse 13 and 14. It's a little awkward when you read it, but if you take it apart, as I'll do, it becomes a lot more simple. For this is not for the ease of others, this giving, and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your, our, your abundance being a supply for their need, but so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Now let's look at this. At the first glance I had at it, I don't know how you look at it, but the first glance, it seems like he's trying to soften what the Macedonians' giving was all about. He told them about the Macedonian. And it's almost as if he's backing up just a little bit because he wants them to better understand what he's trying to say. It could be. You know, the Macedonians had given beyond their ability. And some people can't handle that. They're not on a level of walking with God to where they can give out of God's economy instead of their own. They, they don't understand that. And I don't recommend ever starting there. But you see, the, the Corinthians were not in anywhere close to that spiritual plane of walking with God. And so the skeptics that were in Corinth, and we know they were there, uh, could have taken what Paul illustrated in the Macedonian giving and, and made a mockery out of it. You know what they would have said? They would have said that the Macedonians now were poorer than ever, and the poor Jerusalem Christians now, they were on easy street, and it's ridiculous. Well, I don't know if that's what Paul was doing or not, but I'll tell you what he does do. He eradicates that thought real quickly. He puts, he puts it right back where it needs to be. And he goes, remember, he's already told them, I want you to give out of what you have. In verse 12, he says, for if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. But then he adds in verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others. Now, he refers to the people that are going to be the recipients of this offering, the Macedonian believers, the, I mean, uh, the Jerusalem believers that were in a very poverty-stricken state. This is not for the ease of others. Now, what in the world is he talking about? The word ease there is the word anasis, which means to be freed from something. It's an interesting word. Uh, their giving was not so that the poor in Jerusalem who were going to receive this offering would be freed in any way from their responsibility to give to the needs of others. It wasn't so they could be on easy street. That wasn't what this was all about. There would be a time when those receiving the gift from the Corinthians would be back on their feet. And when they got back on their feet, then uh, when that happened, they were to give to the needs of others. Giving never stops. There are seasons of your life that maybe you cannot give at the point of you're, you're the one receiving the, the gifts of somebody. But that's not the purpose of it. It's like you give to get to give, to get, to give, to get, to get, you just keep on moving. It's like a divine cycle that you get into. And, and when you are the one receiving it, it's not just for you to be on easy street. That's not what it's all about. It's to meet your needs and to get you back on your feet. But then you have a responsibility then because you're a part of the body of Christ. And Paul adds to that. It's not for them to be on easy street. It's not for them to be freed from their responsibility to give. He turns right around and says, and it's not for your affliction. And what he means by that is God doesn't want the Corinthians to misunderstand the giving of the Macedonians to where they gave beyond what they really could give and then not have enough money to pay their own bills. He said, that's not what I'm saying to you. 
And then he balances it. He said, but by way of equality. This is an interesting thing. For this is not for the ease of others but for, and for your affliction, but by way of equality. The word equality there is the word esotis, which means that which is equitable, that which is fair to all considered. Now, Paul had spent quite a bit of time teaching the Corinthian church back in 1 Corinthians about the body and how we need each other. And this is just another example of that. He spent three chapters basically referring to how the body is one, one, one entity, and none of us are islands to ourselves, and how each one of us depend upon each other. It's interdependent upon each other. And so what we see here is that all believers are, are if they're walking in the Spirit, we'll be sharing with each other. It's a constant thing. Christ in us, giving us enough to share with somebody else. And, and then when they get on their feet, giving them enough to share. Or maybe we're the ones next time that need somebody to help us. There'll be times when we won't have money to give. And others will give to us. And at that time, we can trust him to meet our needs if we're willing, when we do have it, to give to those who are hurting. But here's the real point to me as I studied it. What goes around comes around. Giving is an exciting adventure. It's the heart of God. And you cannot outgive God. He says in verse 14, at this present time, your abundance, speaking to the Corinthian church, being a supply for their need. So that there, the there are the poor, poor saints in Jerusalem. Their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That there may be equality. It's hard to understand how the Corinthians would ever, ever have to, a need for somebody to give to them, but Paul uses that as an illustration. He said there could come a time when it could reverse. And when those Jerusalem believers got back on their feet as I was studying this, it said it was a whole decade before they ever really did get back on their feet, but they did get back on their feet. And Paul says, hey, it's going to come back to bless you. If you are willing to, to let Jesus be Jesus in you and bless these people now, you don't understand. Down the road, when you have a need, God will use them to bless you. That's the way the body functions together. The principle is that if we want our, to, to assure ourselves that our needs will always be met, that we must learn to give as God directs in our life. Giving is never one-sided when you're dealing with believers. It'll come around. What goes around comes around. There will be a season in our life when we'll have abundance. Paul said in Philippians, I've learned how to abound, and I've learned to be abased. And I've learned to trust God in both times. And, and he had picked up on this. You're not always going to have it. Sometimes you won't have it. But when you're giving it while you do have it, it assures you that when you need it, God will use others to bring it to you. You see, most of us are scared to death of this truth. That's why, that's why giving has got to be on the top shelf of what God does in a person's life. Because if there's fear, there's not faith. If we're going to trust God, then we do what he says to do, and we trust him with the results of all of that. You know, this is not anything new. This is exactly to me what Jesus said in Luke 6, 38. Let me read it to you. Give, and it will be given to you. That's a pretty clear statement. You learn to give as I direct you, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, by the way you're willing to give, it will be measured to you in return. That's exactly what Paul's trying to say. 
It comes back to bless you. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, uh, he had a beautiful picture of this. He's thanking them for the gift. They sent a monetary gift to him and delivered it by Epaphroditus, and he's thanking them for it. That's why he wrote the letter. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at, my first, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Remember, these are Macedonian churches. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's what he's trying to tell them. You can't outgive God. You, you, God's going to give it right back to you. But verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then he brings about the promise of the provision that they could count on. Because they were willing to sacrifice and send a gift to him, he says in verse 19, and my God will supply all of your needs. Now, that's a powerful phrase there. Not some of them. All of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I tell you what, if you know what I'm talking about tonight, you're smiling on the inside and you're saying, glory, yes. But some of you are sitting out there thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I can't trust God to do that. Well, if you can trust God to save you, you can trust God to do that. Because that's another promise that he gives in his word. It's not me saying this. This is God saying this. You see, when people walk into the lordship of Christ, they have no problem trusting God. The people that are having problem trusting him are the people that are struggling by just yielding fully to him. So if you want God to meet your needs down the road, then ask yourself whether or not you're giving under his leading in your life. I promise you that. I don't promise you. God promises you that. We pray tonight for illumination and for cooperation to where we can begin to get in touch with what he wants to do in our life. Years ago when Diane and I first got started in all this, when it was, it was just as much a foreign language to me as it is to some of you. And I'm thinking, man, I remember, I remember we were struggling because we needed to pay a bill. We owed $188.55. I remember it to the penny. And Diana said, well, Wayne, why don't we just go ahead and start giving like God has told us, and let's trust him to provide for that. And, of course, always it's like a person says, well, I'm, I'm going to get married one of these days when I have enough money, you know. Or we're going to have children when we get ready. You know, when does that time ever come? And we just got down and prayed. We said, God, what are you telling us to do? Now, remember, when I give an illustration, it's not what God may tell you. It's what God told us. Now, I understand that. And God told us to go ahead and give our tithe and trust him. Trust him. It's almost like the challenge he gave in Malachi. He said, test me. Test me. And just see if you can outgive me. We gave it. Well, that next weekend, I had a retreat, a couple's retreat that somebody had asked me to do. I was just a, a secondary staff member then. I was a youth or something. And I had a wedding to do on that Saturday. That's an odd combination. Never done that before. A couple's retreat with 40 people, 20 couples, and a, and a wedding. Now, first of all, what do you get for a wedding? I started thinking maybe God will give it through that. I mean, the only thing I ever get for a wedding is thanks a lot while you're here or while you're late. I mean, you don't do it for money. It's a, it's a service. So I wasn't worried. But on a couple's retreat, first of all, I knew the church that they came out of, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, it'll be, I'll have to pay for my own gas, get over there. That's the way it's going to work. 
But no, Dinah said, why don't you just trust God? Boy, between Dinah and the Holy Spirit, I don't have a chance. I went to do the retreat, did the session that night, and oh, several sessions that afternoon and night. And then the next morning, got up, did two sessions, then went over and did the wedding that afternoon while they were doing other things, came back and finished the sessions that evening. And when I left, they didn't give me anything for the wedding, but when I left, the people had taken up an offering for me. And it, normally, that's not something, I, don't, I never do it for that, but brother, I had that on my mind this time because I had $188.55 that I needed to have, and, and it was due coming right up. And I remember when I took it, I said, oh, no, you shouldn't have, you know, pulling it away at all times. No, no, you shouldn't have. And they had it in a sack, and I took that sack, and, man, I got in my car, <laughs> and I left. I tried to drive casually. Don't peel out. Don't spin the gravel. I mean, I, I wanted to see how much that offering was, dollar bills, nickels, dimes, quarters, I mean, whatever. <laughs> and I drove about a, oh, gosh, until I got out of their sight. It was at night. And I quickly pulled over to the side of the road, <laughs> and I turned the light on inside that car, and I put it over in the passenger floor where the floorboard is there. And I poured every bit of it out, and I started stacking it up in dollars and pennies and nickels and dimes. And I started putting it, and I started counting it. And I got to 170, and I got to 175, and I got to 180, and I got to $188 to the penny. And I said, God, you owe me 55 cents. Man, that was the most thrilling day of my life. And it was like God was sitting up in heaven and saying, how do you like that, big boy? You actually trusted me. It's amazing to me. You'll trust God to save you. You'll trust God when you die. But in between A and B, we don't give him time of day. We don't believe God will do what he says he'll do. And I'm telling you, when people don't live in these principles, it's not a matter of just simple hard-headedness. It's a matter of unbelief. God said it, and I didn't write it. And he said, if you will give, it'll come back to you in the same measure you give. And he says, your need, God will supply all of your needs, he told the Philippian church, because of your willingness to give when the Holy Spirit said give. And people think that giving is some kind of trickery used by preachers to get people's money. That's sick. No, it's God's way of saying, I want you to get in on my economy. You have no clue. You have no clue until you're willing to trust me by being willing to give. So he tells the Corinthian church, he said, I don't command you. I'm just waiting on you. You told me you wanted to do it. I can't wait to see what's going to be put to your account, just like he said to the church of Philippi, because God honors people who honor him. Verse 2. Or the second <laughs> point, <laughs> not the verse. We see the provision in grace giving, and it's solid. It's sound. It is sound. It is sound today as it was back then. But the precaution in grace giving. Now, he gives a precaution here. There's something we need to be very careful about, and it fits right in with what he's just said. We must understand that having is not for hoarding. Having is not for hoarding, for putting it away somewhere to where it's not in circulation, where God can use it. The old American thought of get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, poison the rest is not what Paul is talking about here. But we live in the 21st century. That's what everybody else is talking about. I've heard so many people tell me, and I'm 62. I'm, I'm kind of one of you. 
And they say, what's going to happen with Social Security? It's going to go bankrupt. And I'm thinking, give a rip. I'm going to trust God in it. He's going to take care of his people and give and give and give as he, as he directs under his lordship. And you're not worried about Social Security. Matter of fact, the retirement program with God is not bad. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, what he's talking about here is back in the book of Exodus, and you have to go back with me to understand what he's doing. He's quoting out of Exodus, the 16th chapter and the 18th verse. He's illustrating how God could be trusted to meet everybody's needs, no matter how, much, how little or how great it is. Now, remember, needs. He's faithful to do that. In the Exodus passage, the children of Israel were in the wilderness where they could not find enough food to eat. So they went to God. God, will you help us? And God provided food from heaven, which was called, you know what it was called? What was it called? Manna. I think the word manna in the Hebrew means, what is it? <laughs> manna was evidently not real <laughs> exciting. Uh, it didn't smell like a, a McDonald's burger, but man, manna was very thin, white flakes, which appeared on the ground every morning. God just brought it down. Now, God told the Israelites to gather as much as they needed for the day. It didn't matter what they needed. Needed, You take what you need. Some gathered more than others did, had larger families or whatever, or bigger appetites, but each had enough just for that day. That's the way God lives, takes us day at a time. But there were those who just couldn't seem to get the picture. He said, I don't want you to leave any of it laying on the ground at night. But no, though, they left it out there so they could store it up. So in case they didn't have enough the next day, they could use what they left over for the day before. And as a result, you know what they got? A smelly, maggot-ridden mess. God caused it to rot right there. Everyone that couldn't believe him to provide what they needed the next day and tried to store it up or to save it, he let it rot right in front of them. Exodus 16, 19, Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Remember Moses said about the Israelite people? He said they're, they're the most stiff-necked, rebellious people on earth. <laughs> they were Baptists. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul and Moses was angry at them. And what he was angry about was, are you not going to trust God? Is this how little you trust him? Did you have to continually store up because you don't think God can meet your needs and therefore you don't give because you can't afford it? And you don't recognize you can't afford not to give because the only assurance you have that God will meet your needs is when you're giving to the needs of others. So our motive in giving is to trust God. That's the bottom line. Walk by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's to trust him. And when he says to do something, we do it totally trusting him that he knows our need even better than we do, and he'll take care of it. And the measure of our giving in what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians is God's material blessing that he has given to us. Paul doesn't lay down any mathematical formulas because to one it's more or less than another. But grace giving is not some systematic investment program, and sometimes you even hear it that way. That's not what it is. 
Grace giving is just Jesus being Jesus in us, reaching out and touching the needs of other people around us. Uh, grace giving is never satisfied with the minimum, and we see that with the Macedonian church. It's got to start there. I personally believe that's the tithe. And again, people take me on all the time. That's Old Testament. Well, I'm sorry. You just have to live with me if you disagree. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek 400 years before the law came into existence. I can't somehow equate that with the law. And I think Melchizedek was a type of Jesus earlier on. Didn't have a beginning, didn't have an end. It was a reflex. It was just somebody was grateful for what he had, and he wanted to give the first fruits back to God. That, that, that's so basic. And as Paul told them in 1 Corinthians, he said, just every week, take out some and, and put it aside. Start learning to discipline yourself. You'll see in chapter 9, it's a very thought-through thing. It, it can start there. Grace giving is an awesome thing that God tries to get us into so that we can learn to live in His economy with Him being our provider and, and trusting Him to do what He says He'll do. Paul's emphasizing that we can trust God to be the one who balances the books in our giving. We've gone back over our life and looked at those years that God taught us how to give, and it does not add up. You cannot make it add up. Everybody told me, every time I'd get a savings account, I'd put so much into it, God said, give it. <laughs> every time. It's almost like Diane and I started getting, we started laughing at that. And people said, hey, you going to send your kids through college? I said, man, I'm going to do what God tells me to do, and God's going to take care of that when those times come. Now listen, be real careful of what you're listening to here. You have to hear what God says and do what He says. And don't take my experience and try to put it into yours. Build your life on what God says in His Word, not Wayne's experience. But if I can encourage you any, we sent both kids all the way through college never borrowed a dime. And we gave all the way through. And you take a piece of paper and you cannot make that work out. It, it's not a mathematical scale. God balances the book. He knows the people that are walking with him and are willing to give. Well, I hope you've learned this lesson. It took us, took us forever to learn it. If you choose to hoard what you have, <laughs> remember, it's not what you have. If you hadn't got this yet, God owns it. It's his. And he will get it. <laughs> Whether you give it or not, he will get it. Have you, how many of you here have learned that? Anybody here besides me? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not, I'm not speaking to those who have been there. You just go ahead and store it up. Oh, but Brother Wayne, I'm waiting on a rainy day. It's going to rain. You hear the thunder? And it'll come quicker than you ever thought it would come. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, what in the world is going on? And God said, it's up to you. You can do what I tell you to do or however you want to do it. So the provision in grace giving is that we can trust God to meet our needs when they arise. We may have a time of abundance, and God will have us give more than we've ever given during that time. But there may be a time we don't have times of abundance. Something went wrong, job, whatever, and God will use others to take care of us, and it's the way the body responds to, its, to each other. But then the precaution in grace giving is when God chooses to give, don't try to hold on to it and hoard it because it's to be in circulation and meet the needs of his people. Thirdly, the protection in grace giving. Now, this is a more of a lengthy passage here, but it's so awesome. When giving is truly initiated by God, and I'm going to keep saying that so somebody doesn't jump and, and mishear here, and the gift that he tells you to give is not personally delivered. In other words, there are many times God puts on our heart to give something to somebody, we take it right to them. 
And so that's not what he's talking about. But when it's given to somebody and, and others have to disperse it, others are responsible to take what's been taken up to, make, to meet the need wherever it is. And, of course, this need was in Jerusalem, and he's over in Corinth. Somebody's going to have to take that money over there. That's the way it was in this situation. Then the money must be handled by those who can be totally trusted by the leadership of the church. This is the integrity that's built into this. Now, Paul, in the remainder of chapter 8, without, I don't even know if it was intended, but he indirectly lays out the character of those who are to be trusted when it's a, co a community offering that's going to be taken from A to B, and somebody's got to be responsible to protect it and to make sure it's dispersed the right way. Now, these folks mentioned in the verses we'll look at were those who were put, into put in charge of this, to, along with Paul, to take this offering over to Jerusalem. Now, you'll note something about them. They were very spiritual and very special people. Now, they weren't God's called leadership there because Paul was the apostle. But these came along. He had a burden for the people in Jerusalem, and he shared it, and these people bought into it as God spoke to their heart. And now they're coming alongside him to assist him in the burden God has given to him. Now, today in our culture, perhaps they might represent the finance committee of, of a church. They might represent the finance committee of a missionary organization or any group of people that are, that are assigned to make sure the money does what it's supposed to do, gets to where it's supposed to, to get. The people that Paul mentions in these verses worked alongside Paul, who was God's man, to carry out this assignment. And let's look at some of the characteristics of these people, and you see them in different ones. First of all, we note that they were believers who had a God-given burden to serve with not over God's leaders. They wanted to come alongside. In verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Now, Titus was a man who had been deeply burdened by God to come alongside Paul, especially in this particular thing. Paul made the appeal, and Titus responded. The word put in the phrase, God puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, is the word vitome. And vitome means to bestow on somebody or to give to somebody who, who did not or would not otherwise have had it. Titus didn't, it wasn't an emotional moment in his life. It wasn't uh, somebody coerced him or twisted his arm. He, he heard the appeal, and God spoke to him and said, you need to go alongside here and carry this thing to its fulfillment. To handle God's money, you must have people like this who in their walk with Christ have been burdened to come alongside the leaders God has appointed and who have made the appeal to serve and to make sure things are, are, are done for the glory of God. Paul says that Titus not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And that word own accord is a Greek word, authoritos. It, it means to choose spontaneously. Nobody did anything to make him do it. This was a choice he made in his spirit as he learned to cooperate with what the will is that God had illumined in his heart. No one twisted his arm. 
The second thing we learn about these people, whoever they would be in whatever situation, they had a burden for the total message of the gospel. And this is so key. It says in verse 18, we have sent along with him the brother, we don't know who it is, whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. Now, we don't know who he was, but they knew who he was. When it says whose fame and the things of, of, of the gospel, the word gospel uh, is a beautiful word. It, it doesn't just mean a burden for the lost. I guarantee you, if I ask everybody in here, what do you think the gospel is? It's a salvation message. Well, yes, that's part of it. But the gospel takes it all the way through. The whole Bible is the story of the gospel, the good news of Christ and what he wants to do for us and then in us and then through us. One's burden for the lost certainly denotes a sensitivity to the, to the lordship of Christ in his life. But the things of the gospel are far beyond that. It includes the message of Christ living in and through us. It, it involves one who can hear from him and learn to cooperate when he speaks and trust him in all things. That's what the gospel has to do here. It's a person who is God called to come alongside to assist. And it's a person who has a deep sensitivity to the Lord and knows how to hear him and knows how to walk with him. Thirdly, they had a desire to see God, not man, glorified in the giving of his people. In other words, that gift that was being taken to the poor in Jerusalem, they wanted no men to be glorified in it. And Paul says in verse 19, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. Boy, it's so awesome when you get people in a church that will come side the, the leaders that God has appointed and who have had the burden placed upon their hearts and they've made the appeal to the people and the people have responded and they come alongside and say, oh man, let us walk with you. Let us assist you in that which God has put in front of you so that he and he alone can get the glory. His purpose was just to honor Christ. And because of this, this man had the confidence, whoever he was, of the whole church that he ought to accompany Paul because he had Paul's heart, he had Paul's vision, he, he, he had Paul's motive. They knew he would glorify God in handling the money. That's who you want, handling the money, people that walk with God. And then fourthly, they had a reputation for honesty. Verse 20 through 22, he says, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift, for we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. He says, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Well, the people around Paul were tested and proven by Paul, believers who would do nothing to bring discredit to the ministry. And finally, and i got to hurry, fifthly, they had a cooperative spirit with Paul. I want you to understand something, that the people who handle finances in churches, God's call do not work for them. And they do not work for God's call. They work together. And there's a cooperative spirit here to carry out the burden that God had put on his heart. What churches do and have done over the years, and I'm not talking about us, I'm just talking about churches. Wherever you've been, you've seen it is to ask successful business people who have done well in the world system of making money to take care of God's money in the church. Now, that can be good, but it can be bad. The problem will be that they might not have the kindred heart. They might not have the kindred vision. 
They might not have the kindred walk with God and the sensitivity to when he speaks to trust him in whatever he says with the God-called leaders that God has given. Titus was totally committed to serve alongside Paul with no agenda. Of Paul calls him his partner and his fellow worker in verse 23 and 24. Well, so the soundness, I've got to quit. The soundness of grace. I'm glad when we get to heaven there'll be no clock-eyed people. <laughs> It'll just be a time. The soundness of grace giving is found in the provision of grace giving. You can, I, you can write it down. God has already told you. If you want to assure that your needs, not your wants, will be met, then get involved in giving. The precaution in grace giving is don't ever hoard what God gives you. In the good days, don't hoard it. Keep it in circulation. Churches even make mistakes in doing that. The protection in grace giving comes when that gift has to be taken someplace. The money is that good people have heard from God and, and, and given and they have to be taken by people that are trustworthy and have character and walk with God and assist the people that God has given the burden to. Well, in conclusion, grace giving is giving done God's way under his direction. That's what it is. And when practiced, it's very, very sound. I'll try to tell about a 20-minute illustration in about two minutes if I can do it. When we were at Wilden Park. We, we were trying to build a building, raise the money to build the building. And uh, we had a man come one day and give us his farm. Unbelievable. 80 acres, had a barn, had a house, had a swimming pool. I wanted to buy it. <laughs> it was a great place. Gave it to the church. He said, but now you're going to have to sell it. Because he said, I, I'm so busy, I don't have the time to do that. So he gave it to us, and we put it up for sale. Six months went by, seven months went by, eight months went by, and it was a great price would come off of it, and that's the money we needed for the next stage in building the building that we were building. And so we called our leadership together. That's, the, that's everybody. That's the staff and the elders and the people that did the finance everything. We came together just for a prayer meeting to ask God what he's doing. And we, right before we prayed, one of them stood up and said, listen, we've got a man in our church that has a ministry to, to teenage kids that are troubled, and he needs a van. And I just want you all to pray while we're praying tonight about giving him our church van. I could see a couple of them saying, what? Let's just give him the church van. But you pray, let's just pray about it. So we prayed, man, and when we finished that prayer meeting, somebody stood up and said, I don't know about y'all, but God put on my heart, we ought to give him that van. Everybody in the room said the same thing. Let's give him the van. It was such a joy and hilarity in that meeting. Here we are giving away a really good church van because he needed it, and we weren't going to charge him a thing. We called him that night and said, the van is yours. And the guy, you could hear him shouting over the phone. Next day at 12 o'clock, the farm sold. It was like God said, I was just testing you, just testing you. See if you're willing to do what I tell you to do, or you want to go back and add two plus two equal four, because when you start getting into God's economy, it won't add up like you think it adds up. And that's where giving is all about, folks. I can't wait till chapter nine. We, we're just getting there. I'm hurrying to get to chapter nine. It's awesome. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.